Good morning. We sang some powerful words. I'm curious if we really believe what we sang this morning about trust, about let his will be done on earth instead of our will. Because when you start getting into this whole complex, and by the way, we're in James chapter 4 this morning. For those that are visiting, we're going through the book of James and we're in verses 13 through 17. James talks about the uncertainty of life. Now, the overall theme is it's time to grow up. And that's practical, just not theoretical. It's, it's supposed to find its way into our life, just not something we sit around discussing Bible studies. And part of that growing up is that we're going to choose joy in the midst of trials, and trials produce stress. I read an article this past week, maybe you heard about it. It talked about three out of five millennials say they are more stressed out than ever. That's their perspective. Somebody tried to quantify that, so they took some research, asked them what they're stressed out about, and here are the top 20 stressful scenarios reported by millennials. I'm not going to read all 20. But you know what number 20 was? I mean, this is really stressful. Washing dishes. Number 19, choosing what to wear. Be thankful you have more than one outfit in the closet because most of the world doesn't. Number 14 was phone screen breaking. Number 10 was forgetting the phone charger. Are you picking something up here? (laughs) Number eight was forgetting passwords. Number seven was phone battery dying. Number six was slow Wi-Fi. Number four was losing their phones. Number one, what do you think it was? Losing their credit card. When I was their age, I couldn't even get a credit card. What was fascinating about this whole study was, and this is what the author says, there was nothing about anyone else. There's nothing about kids, about parents, about illness, about global warming, about nuclear threat. And the author of the article says, what's going to happen when a real crisis comes? Now, we read about crisis every day in the paper. If you look at some of the news reports, one of the ones that's unreported came out of the World Tribune, March 17th, 2019. It's talking about what's going over in Nigeria right now. At least 120 Christians were being slaughtered by Muslim terrorists. On March 11th, they said 52 were killed and 140 homes were burned to the ground. I mean, that is stress. It's tragic. But James talks about all this, and he talks about the uncertainty of life. The uncertainty of life is about the illusion that we are in control. And here's what he says about your and I's life, and we're we're not going to like it this morning, okay? Some people may be offended at what James says. If you are, get over it. But he says it's short, it's frail, it's complex, it is uncertain. Let's look at the verses. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you say. Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town 
and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And note the key phrase there, you who say. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and go do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance because you think you have control when you don't. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Here's the first point. James says, when planning life, do not do it independently of God's person. The phrase come now literally means let's get real. You say, and you're going to go make plans and you're going to point the time, the city, the period of activity. And you're going to say at the end of this activity, we're going to make a profit and I'm going to make me some money. That's what we call a fixed plan. I know a lot of people that make those kind of plans and they say, God, bless my plan. The problem, James says, is where is God in all this planning? Now, I've discovered that when we make plans on our own and we think they're right and we think they're righteous and we think they're good and this is the way it ought to go, this is often where people get disappointed. Because they're off with their dreams, their plans, their passions, and God's like this adjunct professor. God, when I need you, I'll show up at class, but don't call me, I'll call you. And when it doesn't happen their way, according to their time, according to their agenda, according to their plans, they get disappointed, discouraged, and they usually blame someone else. A lot of times they quit. I know pastor friends that graduated with me that fell into that category because church didn't go the way they thought when they showed up and they just got tired and they quit. I hear people say things like this. Well, I didn't expect to be here. This wasn't supposed to happen. I served on a church planning board in Canada for about six years before I went into church planning myself. And if you've ever been in church planning, it is hard. But I still remember going to the conferences, going to the training, going to get tested, And we hear about all the success stories. This is what you need to do. And if you do this, they will come. That sounds like planning on our agenda, doesn't it? I remember one new church planner right out of seminary, took all the training, got all the testing done, and he submitted his plan. And here's what he said. In 10 years, we will have 10,000 people attending our church. Now, you have to understand, in Canada, a megachurch is two to 5,000. At that point in time, when he said that, there was no church of 10,000. And so he went into church planning. He worked hard. Over about six, seven years, it grew to about 160. And then it split over a religious movement in Toronto. So 160 went back down to 80. And they struggled. And see, this text talks about that struggle. It talks about the assumptions that we make. The assumptions about time. You really believe you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't know that. Assumptions about location. 
I mean, a storm could take it out, a natural disaster, a war. What about transportation? You might not be able to get to where you think you should be. Now, let me say this. The text does not condemn planning. But it says, do not plan as if God has nothing to say. Change the we shall to we might. Because we forget that we're dependent beings. And if you live as if God is excluded, then you will be in trouble. That's what James is saying. James says, listen. It's sinful to plan a life independent of God. And we're going to talk about that later. But here's number two. When planning life, do not do it apart from the knowledge of God. In verse 14, you do not know. We do not like to hear that because we think we do know. God is the creator. You're not. He knows everything about you. In fact, God knows things about you you don't even know about yourself. Amen? God knows things about you that you don't want to know about yourself. You cannot control the elements of life. You are finite. You are not infinite. Now, Psalm 73, I'm going to read a few verses from here. It's about life. And the psalmist is saying, you know, life isn't going my way. Life isn't going the way I planned it. So the psalmist is kind of whining, but he's looking at how the relationship he has with God. And here's what he says in verse 22. He says, God, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Now, here's the visual. This is what God wants us to see. It's like saying today, my relationship with you is like you and your dog. Okay? That's the beast. Now, how much advice does Fido give you? When you wake up in the morning, you ask the dog, hey, what should I wear this morning? What about a job search? How much advice does your dog give you? If he talks to you, time to get into counseling, okay? When you have investments, you go to the dog and say, listen, should we buy this stock? Should we put it here? What do you think? Do you go to your dog and say, dog, I need advice? If you do, I will guarantee you, your dog will give you absolutely nothing, except maybe a wolf. (laughs) Now, God's not trying to be insulting, and the psalmist is not trying to be insulting, but here's what he's saying. You don't know a thing about tomorrow, let alone a year later. I mean, let's face it, the emergency room is full of people who had plans for tomorrow. Amen? The cemetery is full of people who had plans for tomorrow. You need to recognize your limitations. And think about time. I've heard it put this way, that when you're a, ty- when you're a child, time creeps. When you're a young adult, time walks. When you're middle-aged, time runs. When you're older, time flies. Now, how many people here this morning are young? Raise your hand. Okay. Anybody who didn't raise your hand, you're smart. I'm going to tell you why. None of us know our death day. 
We talk about scripture, how we're appointed once to die, and we say we believe that, we trust that. None of us know when that day is. If you're 35, your death day is 40, you're pretty old. If you're 50, your death day is 95, you're still young. See, nobody knows who is old and who is not. My mother died at 54 of cancer. Took her a year. I know my mom and dad, they had plans to travel when he retired. But they had no idea she'd get a rare form of cancer and take her life in six months. I mean, it says here that life is a mist. We're here for a little time. You are not here long. In terms of eternity, our lifespan is so short. And God knows what you do not know. Let me go down through a series of verses because the brevity of life is all over scripture. I could literally just stand here for an hour and quote scripture after scripture after scripture. Let me take some out of Job. Job 7. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Remember that my life is a breath. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol, Sheol's the grave, does not come up. Job 8, 9, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Job 9, my days are swifter than a runner, they flee away. Job 14, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And they all say time is uncertain, time is short. In Psalm 90, verse 10, it says the years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, maybe 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now in verse 12, it says this. And I'm going to put these two verses together. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So God says, listen, the psalmist says, listen, be wise about your days. Now, let me make the application here. Here's what you do. Take a piece of paper, write your age on it, or you can just mentally think about your age, okay? Subtract that age from 70. That's how many days you have left, according to Psalms. And he says, use them wisely. Now, you know, Scripture says that all Scripture is profitable, amen? And so if you got offended by that because you say I'm really close to 70, well, time to get over it because some of you are past that. And you know what you do then? Because this by reason of strength, you might get to 80. You count each day as precious. You use it to sacrifice for his kingdom. It's why you're here. You know that. You're the bride of Christ. You're the visible display of Christ to the world. And you only have so many days left to do that. And if you believe in heaven and hell, there should be a sense of urgency. And kingdom values should be driving you, especially for those who have a few days left. If you're living on borrowed time, that's over 70, according to Psalm 90. He says, use it wisely. Use it as a resource to advance his kingdom. Here's the third principle. When playing life, do not do it apart from God's will. In the text, there's that phrase, you should say, if he wills. It isn't some cute little spiritual phrase. It's more than just words. It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. And here's what James says. It's okay to have a plan. 
but it's subject to someone who's greater than you. Often we reverse the process. We make Christ subservient to, to our plans. Rather, we need to be subservient to his plan. Now, here's the context. I'm going to quote out of James. I mean, James, John chapter 4 in a moment. But you have the story of the woman at the well. And disciples come back and they're shocked for several reasons. Number one, he's talking to a woman. That was forbidden in his day. Number two, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Not only didn't you talk to women, you didn't talk to Samaritans. That was forbidden. He was talking to a particular Samaritan woman because the time of day she was there, she was even, she didn't fit the norm of her own Samaritan society. So there was three strikes. Jesus should not have been talking. In fact, they're saying to themselves, if Jesus would have known, actually, they really would have been shocked if Jesus, if they knew what Jesus knew about her. And they come back, they see him, and they see her walking away, and no one's saying anything. You ever do that? You want to ask a question? You're kind of shocked, but you avoid it. And so what do they do? They start talking about lunch. They say, Jesus, uh, what do you want for lunch? And he says, you know what? And here's what he says in John 4, verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, the object, the goal, the end game is God's will. It's not to live longer. The object, the goal, the end game is to live God's will, not to spend our kids' inheritance so they don't get anything. The object, the goal, the end game is God's will, not to save a bunch of money to give it to our kids later. And that's a process. It's interesting today in the world of business, they're talking about emergent strategic planning. (laughs) And I love that phrase because they're getting back to what God says here. They say, set the end game but put the plan in place and be open to shift and negotiate along the way. You need to be flexible, not fixed. But what we do is we have 911 Christianity. We have a plan. Here it is. If we have an emergency, we dial 911 and we say, God, save us. We're in trouble. Here's the fourth point. When planning life, do not do it apart from God's holiness. Verse 16 again, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's talking about two things here. We talked last week about pride. Pride is sin. You want to brag about your plans? Your heart's not right. Your head's not right. And then he says this. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know how many times we talk about sin as avoiding something, as doing the wrong thing? James flips the equation and says, listen, here it's not doing the right thing. Translate this. God is always right. And if we don't do what God tells us to do, then we're living in sin. If we fail to live outside his will, we are living in sin. We can brag all we want. We can look, say, look how successful we are. Look how smart we are. Look at us. Look at what we did. We can even hold a conference on how we did it. And you can do it like us. You know, when you read history, and I enjoy reading certain forms of history, but back in the early days of America, 
they had peddlers that would go through various towns and offer the elixir of life. Remember those stories? They had this cure for everything and anything. And if they didn't have the list and you had it, they put it on the list. We call them snake oil salesmen. We still have them today, don't we? (laughs) But see, that's how we think often when it comes to life. We think we're the next best thing and look at us. And we actually believe we can do all things that we can't do. And we're blind and deceived. A powerful verse that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 9.24 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Period. That I am the Lord. And then here's what he says about himself. Who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So James says, be careful when you're planning. Don't do it apart from God's holiness. Don't do it apart from God's will. Don't do it apart from God's person. And don't do it apart from God's knowledge. So what do we do? I mean, how do we respond to this? Let me suggest four things. The first is begin doing the thing you ought to be doing. Begin doing the thing you ought to be doing. Now, that sounds rather simple, and yet we make it complex because we have a tendency to live Genesis 3. Well, did God really say that? We're like Gideon. Gideon knew what he was called to do, so what's he do? He throws a fleece out. He acts real spiritual and says, well, God, if you really want me to do this, he already knew God wanted him to do this. Then do the ground dry, this wet. And when that happens, he reverses and says, well, this time I want this dry and the ground wet. Begin doing the thing you know you ought to be doing. You take verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, rejoice always. Word rejoice is to have joy. Choose joy always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, just not some. So begin doing the things you know you ought to be doing. You should be filled with joy. And by that, it's just not an emotion. It's a choice you make. It's praying without ceasing. It's giving thanks in all circumstances. And then he says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, we often think about all these big things that are out there. They're mysterious that God wants us, or we think God wants us to do. He says, listen, just start doing what I asked you to do to start with. Number two, trust God for the next step. See, when you start living the way you ought to do, God will lead you one step at a time. Amen? See, our problem is we want to know the end game. We want to know how we're going to get there. We want all the resources in place about how we're going to get there. He just says, listen, trust me. You guys sang this morning. I heard you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I got to tell you, sometimes it's hard to trust in Jesus. Sometimes trusting Jesus, you mostly react against saying, I don't want to do that because that's not part of my plan. Whoop, I upset my grandson. It's funny, the only, the only child I hear is my 
my grandson. Isn't that like Jesus says, hey, my sheep know my voice? I guess it's something like that. I just want to go down and rescue him when I hear that. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. We've been talking about that. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, okay, by testing, you may discern. The word discern means to prove by experience what is the will of God. And then he said, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So do what you know you should already do. And then trust God for the next step. Number three, build intimacy with God. If you're going to do what you know you ought to do, and if you're going to trust him for the next step, you got to be in relationship. You got to be in intimacy with God. John 15, verse five, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruits. See, the problem is we got a lot of Christians who don't bear any fruit because they're not connected to the vine. And then he says this, and this is what we don't like to hear. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We like to say, well, look at me and look what I've done. God says, oh, no, no. You realize if I wasn't walking with you, you can do nothing. One of my favorite scenes in the series with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian, where little Lucy, she's a little girl, and she's the only one that can somehow trust Aslan, who is Christ. And she's always trying to convince her brother and everybody else, don't follow your plan, follow Aslan's plan. Wait for him. They say, he's not here, so we're going to take matters in their own hands. And so she's off with Aslan, And of course, they're getting beat by another army. And the scene is beautiful because here's this army coming across this bridge, right? And Lucy walks out. Little girl. And they're kind of like, say what? And then she pulls out this little knife about that long. Stands there like this. And they're like, really? Look at us. Look at her. But then Aslan walks out. And the army is defeated. I love that scene. See, she's connected to Christ. And she realizes, apart from me, you can do nothing. Then finally, realize the benefits. Realize the benefits. Benefit of intimacy, fellowship with Christ. Mark 3, verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Benefit of knowledge or wisdom, John 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. He will know. Answered prayer, 1 John 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, it's not ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. Eternal life, 1 John 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with us. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. People were coming to Jesus, and they had this question had to do with money. It's interesting, when you read the New Testament, one of the key questions the Pharisees and other people always ask had to do with money. This one had to do with inheritance. A brother thought he was getting cheated by another brother. 
You ever hear that one before? <laughs> and so, like Jesus, he uses a situation to teach about money. Actually, he uses a situation to talk about the real issue. The real issue is greed. See, life's not about what you have or don't have, or whether or not life is fair or not fair, or whether or not family members treated you fairly with money. The real issue is our heart. But here's what it says. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Here's the story he tells. That's the setting. So here's two brothers fighting over inheritance. Jesus tells this story. The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Key phrase there, to himself. Remember, he excluded God's person, holiness, everything else from this plan. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger barns. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. In other words, here's my plan. Look at what I'm going to build. Look at what I've done. I'm a wonderful business person. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Let me translate that for you. I can retire. I can travel. I can do whatever I want because I was a great business person. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? Translate, everyone dies broke. When you die, everything you have will belong to somebody else. Amen? <laughs> might be the government, might be somebody else, who knows? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The uncertainty of life. Each day is precious. Each day is a resource. Everything God has given us is a resource. And what's going to matter is when we come face to face with Jesus. I think the frightening part today is that somehow we've lost this sense of urgency in terms of being the church. We think about us making it, but we don't think about anybody else making it. We think about us having enough. We don't think about anybody else having enough. We think about our plans, and we don't think about anybody else's plans. And all of us know that life is interrupted in ways that we do not expect. So, go ahead and plan. But keep Christ at the center of all your plans. And live in such a way that you say, listen, is this your will? If it is, I'm going to follow. If it is, it doesn't make sense to other people. And I love it throughout Bev and I's life when we had to make decisions based upon where we sensed God was leading us. People would come to us and say, you know, this doesn't make sense. You could be doing. And they're right, we could be doing. But God has placed us elsewhere. And he has taken us to places that we never thought we'd be. And he has brought situations in our lives that we never thought we'd encounter. And yet it's the place that we want to be. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close. And I'm going to pray as they come. Father God, help us to see the glory of you in everything.
And may we hold our plans with open hands and open hearts and open minds. And may we not get frustrated and disappointed at the uncertainty. But may our trust be so sure that we just, we live that. And we allow you to shift and adapt and change who we are and our desires and our passions. Help us to be wise with our time, as the psalmist said. Help us to have a sense of urgency that we really need to do things that will honor you. And for us, that some of us think we're going to be around for a long time, it may be tomorrow that you demand our presence. We don't know. But may we bless one another and may we bless this world. May we use things that will honor you and bring you glory. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, that all the plans and all the dreams that we have, just really we bow our knees in humility at your feet. We take time to listen as we're in relationship with you and each other. So teach us, lead us. May our dreams be from your dreams. May our, what breaks your heart, break our heart. May you do things among us that we could not even have thought or dreamed or even achieved on our own. And then may we not take credit for it, but give you the credit that you deserve. And everyone said, amen.